Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Hello, everyone. Um, this is a bit of a gear change for me because I've just been in the disabled toilets with my son, who decided that today was the day he wanted to start potty training and also to pull the disability alarm cord. <laughs> So I'm just going to try and like mentally change gears. <laughs> and I'm going to start with some scripture. Um, and this is from the message translation uh, because it is, there's lots of the Bible that's like this, but it's a particular passage that we've heard so many times that we've lost the force of it, I think. So go read it in a more uh, accurate translation as well. Uh, health warning. Um, but the message is really great for um, just wiping some of the dust off the Bible. If you fancy closing your eyes, do. If it helps you to read along, do. I just want you to really let, uh, be, really kind of adopt a posture as if you're hearing this for the first time. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. Someone strikes you, stand there and take it. Someone drags you into court and sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff, live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. At the very heart of the Christian gospel is peacemaking, is reconciliation. What happens in those very first verses at the start of the Bible in the Genesis story is not just a break in the relationship between God and humans, but a fracturing of the relationships between humans and other human beings. It is a vertical fracture, but it's also a horizontal one. When sin comes into the world, so does shame and blame, self-defensiveness and tribalism. When the man and the woman in the garden eat the fruit of the tree, they're no longer united in peace, but divided. They begin to defend themselves, to be self-righteous and judgmental and point fingers, and they hide from themselves, from God, and from each other. Happily, this isn't the end of the story. Christians believe that Jesus' death on the cross was an act of self-sacrificial reconciliation. That he healed the break, the fracture, the gulf that had opened up between God and humankind. And as Christians, it's really easy to put a lot of emphasis on that vertical healing, that vertical reconciliation. Me and God, we're okay. And like, let's be clear, that is incredibly powerful and amazing and the start of adventures for us. But the vertical fracture is not the only fracture that the cross heals or should heal. The outworking of the love of God at the cross should make us people of reconciliation, should make us restorers, 
stone setters, peace bringers. And many theologians have gone so far as to argue that reconciliation is the gospel, that this is our highest and deepest calling, to be people who can heal divides and build bridges and overcome our differences, who have the courage to love even our enemies. And if we're not doing that, that we haven't really understood the love of God. And looking at the world around us, looking at the church around us, my guess is that we've got a bit of a way to go on this, that we are not yet living fully in this inheritance. And the verses that we've heard are a paraphrase of some of the most demanding and rigorous and culture teaching the world has ever known. I spend a lot of time with atheists and humanists and uh, secularists and agnostics, and these are the verses. When they, when they talk about Jesus, these are the verses. You know, This is what they mean when they talk about Jesus as a great ethical teacher. These have inspired Martin Luther King and Gandhi and Desmond Tutu and I would say thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands other less famous but no less radical Christian and non-Christian peace and reconciliation movements around the world. Wherever you see a war zone, wherever you see conflict, quietly there, there will be someone trying to live these verses. I don't know you about you, but I've never really known how to apply them. 21st century London... When someone hits you, turn the other cheek. I don't get hit a lot. I mean, my kids are quite scrappy, but generally actual (laughs) facial slapping doesn't happen very much. Love your enemies. I mean, we live, at least in theory, in peacetime, and the idea that I might have enemies just goes against all my kind of, you know, touchy-feely. I don't have any enemies, really. So I've always thought, okay, if I ever get Slapped in the face by a Roman soldier, I know exactly what to do. Thank you, Matthew 5. Back pocket, tuck it away. Uh, Otherwise, how does it apply to me? Genuinely really had no idea. But recently, I've been on a bit of a journey. I am the director of a Christian think tank. I spend a lot of time engaging across differences of belief and unbelief. And I have a podcast called The Sacred, which is basically me trying to apply some of these verses, um, trying to work out what does it mean to love and be in relationship with people with whom I disagree deeply. Um, And if you listen for long enough, you'll hear hopefully lots of people that you disagree with too and are different from you. You know, anyway, I'm not going to list them. (laughs) because then I will flag up people I disagree with. And as I'll explain later, that's dangerous. Uh, Part of my personal calling, the thing that God has put on my heart is to be a bridge person who can be with different types of people and engage with them in a human human and a vulnerable and a non-defensive way. And actually, I think this is part of the calling of all Christians. Because it's not just Matthew 5 that challenges, challenges us about who we are prepared to love, who we're prepared to engage with, how we respond to attack or just disagreement or even social discomfort. Because Jesus was always exposing people's tribalisms. An enormous part of his mission on earth was to expose the boundaries that we put up, the in-group and the out-group thinking, the people that we're prepared to love and pray for and the people that we are not. If you do a Bible word search for tribalism, you won't find it. But in the ancient Near East, in Hebrew culture, it was generally expressed um, with ideas around purity. And we don't necessarily use that word now, except, you know, purity rings or something weird like that. But if you watch public debates for long enough, you'll realize that this is part of what's happening. This person is not really one of us because their version of Brexit is not the correct or the righteous one. And this person over here, she's not the right kind of feminist because of her position on trans issues. That person once kissed a Tory. (laughs) That person once posted in a WhatsApp group about a controversial issue. Uh, These guys over here, sorry, they're so evangelical, they're fundamentalists. 
And these guys over here, they've drifted, you know, and they're just blessed and they're so liberal now, they're just barely Christians. They once quoted this thinker who is now exposed as a misogynist or a tax avoider or a communist. You know, they don't have the right views on the British Empire or Jeremy Corbyn or race or any number of issues on which we are dividing ourselves into ever smaller and smaller slices of right-thinking gangs. We don't want to associate with anyone who might contaminate us. We don't want to be seen with anyone that people might guess we're in the same tribe with. We guard our in-groups by pointing fingers at the out-group. We shore up our fragile sense of self by policing the boundaries of belonging. This is really human. The same was true in first century Palestine. It's almost as if this goes right back to the beginning and we didn't need all the social psychology and neuroscience to tell us that we are deeply, deeply tribal. Jewish teachers at the time of Jesus had taken the purity laws of the Old Testament, which were, and there's a whole sermon we could do on this, and I won't, so just bear with me glossing over, oriented generally around loving God and loving people and turned them into a cripplingly complicated purity system. And this system left many people out, many people in the out-group who were beyond the pale, deserving of the first century equivalent of no platforming or a Twitter pylon. And it's important to say here that we need to be careful about how we read this because it's easy to see the Pharisees as the enemy. Oh, you know, they're so obsessed with their tithes and their herbs. You know, they're just uniquely sinful. But they were living under enemy occupation. The pressure to assimilate with empire was enormous. And what almost every minority does under pressure is double down on its identity markers, avoiding intermarriage, clinging to rituals just to help them survive with any sense of self as a group. And Israel under occupation is doing exactly that. And historians have pointed out that if they hadn't, uh, Judaism might well have not survived. So even in this reading, we need to be careful of our own judgments and our prejudices and particularly our self-righteousness. And as Christians, as we become more of a creative minority, as we become less of a, at least in theory, majority in a culture, we need to watch this in ourselves. What is important to hold on to? And what is just anxiety-driven purity concerns that exclude? So even with that in mind, with that caveat, I started realizing how big a deal purity and outgroup thinking was in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't just speak to those in the outgroup. He doesn't just meet their immediate needs. He eats with them. He demonstrates solidarity with them. It's a really strong symbol in the ancient Near East eating with someone. It sort of still is now. I want you to have just two seconds. Have a think about when was the last time you invited someone over to your house for food who is from a different tribe or with whom you disagree on something really fundamental? really challenging. It almost becomes funny. Like when I started rereading bits of the New Testament through this lens, it's like Jesus is this puckish, like mischievous uh, stirrer. He is deliberately creating social awkwardness by going straight for the least popular person in any given situation. He, it's like he's poking people in their tribalism. He's just bringing all their prejudices right to the surface. Like, let's have a look at this stuff, guys. And he's doing it on purpose. Can you imagine that the tax collectors that Jesus famously spent a lot of time with are perhaps someone like Bernie Madoff, who famously made off with all his investors' money. He's one of the most hated men in the United States. Or here, if we found out in the names of the specific bankers responsible for the 2007 financial crisis, assuming it was just a few, sadly, but if we did and they'd got off scot-free, that's who Jesus is headed for. He spoke 
and spoke kindly to a woman who was ill because of essentially a never-ending period. This, she'd been bleeding really heavily, she'd been hemorrhaging, she was exhausted, and she didn't just have to deal with that, she had to deal with the stigma that came with it in an age without tampons and moon cups and sanitary towels. And I'm like, I almost didn't mention the word period in a sermon. <laughs> just, let's just put that to the side. I, this is what we mean when we're talking about purity. This is the stuff that we just don't want to deal with. We don't want to be fully ourselves. We don't feel safe. We don't say what we think. We fear we'll be written off, lumped in with a type or a group. And part of the call of Christians, I think, is to be safe people, to be like Jesus, unafraid and undisgusted by all tribes, by all groups, by all people, by all elements of human life and the way we live in our bodies and in the world. Jesus spent time with the sexually immoral, with people with a past who'd made mistakes, who'd said really stupid things. And in this call-out culture, we need to be a little bit careful about that one. And the bit I find most challenging is that he happily engaged with the oppressors, the Roman soldiers, as much as the marginalized. He healed the Roman centurion's daughter without a second thought. He spent time with lepers, who might be the equivalent today of homeless people or destitute asylum seekers, people pushed right to the edges of society who most people don't really want to make eye contact with. Wherever we sit in these asymmetrical power relationships, these complicated status arrangements that we have in our society, that we're all embedded and all complicit in, Jesus provokes us and nudges us and scandalizes to really see and love those on the other side of those power relations. And it's really hard, right? This is, there's a reason that this is famous, because it's so rigorous, so radical, so anti-instinctive and the voice in my head and it might be in your head too always goes but 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 give me a minute but I have a really good counter argument to that by the way Jesus they're really wrong these guys I can love them 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 these guys really wrong so wrong they're dangerous you know isn't just appeasement if we just let them get on with that they started it and then more quietly more honestly maybe they don't like me why do I have to love them? The more I read the scriptures, the more I think Jesus doesn't leave us room for self-righteousness. He doesn't leave us any room to be bitchy and dismissive and disdainful about any group of people. We're called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute, you, persecute us. And I think also those who piss us off, who wind us up, who just take against us for no apparent reason who treat us really badly, who are officious representatives of bureaucracy and officialdom. People who overlook us. That might be how we apply these verses today. And it doesn't mean we can never disagree or debate, but we need to be ultra careful about how we do so and seek reconciliation before we seek to persuade of our own rightness. So for the rest of this talk, I'm going to try and get practical. Sorry, that was really heavy, so thank you for staying with me. Um, I just want to get really practical about what it means to be bridge-building, divide-crossing followers of Jesus. And this is going to get uncomfortable, and I hope it will keep making you uncomfortable, and I'm really sorry about that. But it's also personal. The only way we get better at this is we come face-to-face with how bad we naturally are at it. And I've been on a really painful uh, excavation of all of the ways I'm bad at this. It's really hard. Our innate discomfort with difference and disagreement is ancient. And you can draw on theological explanations about the fall, 
or on evolutionary explanations about group psychology, and I think they are basically different ways of saying the same true thing about the human condition. We're tribal. We're easily triggered into a threat reaction. We're easily made defensive. We're socially uncomfortable and therefore guarded around most people, and loving our enemies does not come naturally. Turning the other cheek is not an instinctive response to insults or difference or disagreement. It's just not. An instinctive response is fight or flight. Most of you have heard of this. Anyone who's dealt with anxiety in their lives will have uh, become really aware of that fight or flight reaction. Anxiety is a kind of over, uh, over dosage of fight or flight. And we kind of know about it a little bit in terms of sports psychology and various other things. And when we're attacked physically, but also, I think, when we encounter a tribe not our own, when we encounter someone who disagrees with us, someone we sense doesn't automatically like us, this is a key one, when our choices are questioned, happens a lot in parenting, <laughs> we get this little kick of the hormone cocktail that readies us for conflict. And you see this playing out in macro in public debates. We're constantly being triggered into fight or flight with each other. The two possible reactions seem to be fight, you know, come out swinging with ever clearer, sharper, spikier messages about how wrong your opponent is, or flight, just withdraw to your lovely filter bubble, just engage with people just like you, and soothing Instagram feed where nothing comes anywhere close to making you uh, uncomfortable. One way of reading turn the other cheek is to avoid doing either of these in situations of conflict or disagreement. I think part of what Jesus is saying is stay, stay still, like stay in the relationship, stay in the conversation. Let those instinctive responses just pass through your body. Keep looking your assailant in the eye. And according to the rest of the passage in Matthew 5, pray for them, love them, seek their good and this is hard enough with people that we already love, right? Like, I, the reason I started thinking so deeply about this is uh, because I started reading loads of parenting books to w try and work out how a two-year-old could be helped with her very large emotions um, uh, and what I could do to help her stop attacking her brother, etc. And uh, what I learned was a lot about brain development and fight or flight. And what became really clear is that if I can stay calm and open and empathetic, it de-escalates de the situation faster than if I hit back or I shout or I storm off. It took me at least a lot of practice. This is hard with our children. This is hard with our spouses. This is hard with our friends, right? This gets much harder when we are metaphorically hit in the face by someone we don't already like or feel comfortable with, when the person is not in our tribe or not in our gang. Okay, I want you to close your eyes again. For those of you who, that's not terrifying. I promise you're safe. No one is going to tickle you or do anything awful. Um, I want you to imagine you're at a party, and it's with your closest friends, and maybe your family, They're, and it's just people you feel totally and utterly comfortable and yourself with. And for some of you, that may, might be a very small number of people. And for some of you, that might be 50, 70. It just depends on your character and your introversion and extroversion and your journey that you've been on. That's fine. Just whatever the, whatever the number is for you to just feel that sense in your body of... Oh, you're at home. You can say whatever you want. You can wear whatever you want. You can really do whatever you want because you know that you're safe and that you're loved. And now I want you to imagine that that door opens and someone comes in and they are the opposite of your tribe. And they make you feel immediately less comfortable. A bit annoyed, you sit up straighter. If you're a woman, you might suddenly start thinking about what you look like. If you're a man, you might suddenly take a bit more space. 
a bit annoyed. You feel more defensive. You start feeling awkward, and you're just a little bit tempted to go, or to roll your eyes. And now, in the privacy of your own heart, I want you to admit to yourself who they are. And sadly, if you're anything like me, i.e. really pretty tribal and riddled with sin, there will probably be like a selection box of types of people that you really, really do not want at your party. And I would love to tell you who mine is, but if I do that, something will happen. You can open your eyes now if you'd like to. Sorry. Key piece of information. Um, I may name some groups or positions which I don't, but you do have an affinity with. And when I do that, you will like me less. If I tell you who I feel tribally aligned with, and that's not you, or if I tell you which tribes I find most difficult and uncomfortable, and that is you, you will process the rest of this talk differently. Study after study has shown that we are massively more easily persuaded by people that we feel already like us, or who we feel affirmed by, or who we generally have a sense of affinity or connection with. And this can be as simple as someone telling you in a research group that you have a personality like that other person. It can even be eye colour. Like, it doesn't need to be very much connectedness for us to be warmer and more open towards that person. And obviously, conversely, the exact same evidence or arguments delivered by people that we already think that we disagree with or that we feel different from or we feel threatened by, we just tie ourselves in cognitive hoops in order to be able to dismiss those evidence and arguments. We find ways to discount it, post hoc reasons why they're wrong. And at least one study has shown, and this effect is very, very well documented, and at least one study has shown that the more intelligent you are, the more likely you are to do this. You just come up with fancier ways why that person's evidence and arguments are wrong. This is not an ignorance or an education problem. Unfortunately, we do not get more tribal when we go to university. This is a heart problem. So who are the groups that you feel like a fish out of water with? Like, becoming conscious of it, admitting it to yourself, is really powerful. If you're politically conservative, they might be uh, someone who writes for Novara Media, one of the new wave of young communists who want to talk to you about why Marx works so important right now. If you lean to the left, they might be a free market liberal who thinks abolishing the welfare state is the best way to bring justice. If you're a massive fan of Jordan Peterson, they might be a woman with a this is what a feminist looks like t-shirt and a big rainbow bandana. If you're a Christian, as many of you in this room will be, might be someone who is an acolyte of Richard Dawkins who's just desperate to tell you about why they believe in the flying spaghetti monster. Depending where you live in London, what your life experience is, there might be a devout Muslim. There might be a trans person. If you've grown up amongst a reasonable amount of privilege, as many of us have, it might be someone who's clearly outwardly materially deprived and in need. And if you're someone who's really familiar with financial struggle, it might be someone in a slick suit who looks like they went to Eton. Hold the image of that person in your head and admit that you really don't want them at your party. <laughs> Thanks very much. And then imagine that coming through the door, directly behind them is Jesus. And he's got his hand on their shoulder of the person that you're really hoping not to have to talk to. And he is leading them in your direction with a very mischievous glint in his eye. <laughs> Becoming aware of our own tribalisms and learning to override our fight-or-flight reaction can really help us be people of peace. But it takes intentional practice. 
Nutritionists, nutritionists speak of an obesogenic environment. I don't know if you've heard this, you know. It's really hard to eat healthily when everywhere we are bombarded with advertising messages and stand by the checkout with unhealthy food. And it's basically big companies, it really benefits them to, for us to eat unhealthily. And the same is true with conflict. Changes in information technology and media and political campaigning means that we now live in a conflictogenic environment <laughs> where it takes an actual conscious act of rebellion to deprogram ourselves from these habits of attack or withdrawal that we've got into. And there's whole body, decades of Christian conflict resolution literature which you can dive into to help with this. But we've covered a lot of ground today. So today I'm just going to tell you two stories about how this has worked in my life. And forgive me if you might have heard at least one of them before, but um, the endings have changed. <laughs> and uh, at the end I'm just going to give you like a few practical things that I found really help us stay in those situations, turn the other cheek, continue the conversation and love our enemies. Um, so, the first one was a guy called Ted, who uh, I'd met a little bit, actually. We are in each other's vaguely kind of industry slash social circle. So, we'd met a bit on Twitter. We'd had a beer together once. It was very kind of tenuous acquaintance, but enough that I knew who he was, and I knew he knew who I was offline. And one day, I was tweeting about how most of the atheists that I interview on my podcast distance themselves from new atheism. And whatever, for whatever reason, it really touched a nerve with him that day, and he just went for me. It was like a 12-tweet uh, thread uh, spelling out why I am undereducated and generally stupid, that I haven't read enough of the Bible, I haven't read enough of the scholarship about the Bible, referencing some very out-of-date scholarship, uh, why I don't understand evolutionary uh, psychology, and if I did, you know, I could just read the entry-level stuff like Sapiens, uh, you know, Yuval Noah Harari, and then I'd understand why, you know, evolutionary psychology has explained away religion. And then right at the end, he called me actively dishonest. He said, in public, you're just lying to people. Uh, and all religious leaders are. They're just lying to people. You're, you're dishonest and disingenuous. Like, thanks, bye. <laughs> and um, I could... Uh, and because I've been doing this work with the kids of recognising my own reactions, I feel, I can, what's funny is I can feel it even now. I feel a little bit sick. That's, that's how I react. And I could, it was just like... Do -do 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 -doing. <laughs> Hello, cortisol and adrenaline. <laughs> Hello, old friends. Uh, and because I've been trying to be more conscious of this, I text Chris and I said, log me out of Twitter right now, right now, right, right, change my password, change my password, do it now. Like, pull the car over. <laughs> change my Twitter password. Because I just felt this like... And I spent two days literally cycling around London, composing like really just pithy burns. Just like, you mansplain my religion to me, you patronising... <laughs> I like... I was so wounded because he pressed all my buttons, right? He's, and I won't tell you again, but he happens to belong to some of the tribes that I don't feel comfortable with and who bring out my insecurities around my intelligence, around lots of things, basically. I just felt like someone had slapped me in the face really hard. And uh, Chris was brilliant, and so after I'd spent two days composing acidic and hilarious responses. Um, <laughs> I just finally remembered that I was supposed to pray for him. And I started praying for him. And there's a reason that when Jesus says, love your enemies, he follows it immediately with, and pray for them. Because it's like magic. 
It really is. Like, I went from thinking this guy was the biggest... I wish I could swear. It would really help me. <laughs> you can fill it in. <laughs> that I've ever met. To doing this, like, weird thing of just beginning to feel this, like, compassion or something <laughs> for him. And that meant after four days, I felt like I said, OK, Chris, I'm OK, I'm calm. I'm out of my fight or flight. And I was able to respond quite vulnerably and say, basically, ow. Like, I didn't want to respond immediately because I was very taken aback and quite hurt by what you said. And here's a few responses to some of the things that you said. But honestly, like, I feel like this isn't going to be productive in this setting. So would you like to come for dinner? And I, again, props to Chris, because he was like scrappy-doo. He was like, let me at him! You know, <laughs> I'm not having the man who insults my wife in my house! Um, <laughs> but, you know, he got there. And uh, this guy has since come for dinner twice. And you know what? I think he's going to be a friend. Like, I really like him. <laughs> and it, we just, like... Chris and him just went for it on like philosophy and apologetics and whatever. And but slowly over time, he's just softening right up. And last time he gave us a big hug on the way out the door and he said, You're my favourite Christians. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, I think I might actually be beginning to respect your position. <laughs> um, but that's not why we do this. Uh, the second story is. Uh, of a, what I thought was a political conference. In party conference season, I was invited to go to a gathering of progressive political leaders from across Europe, from you know, the Five Star Movement and the Icelandic Pirate Party and uh, climate activists. And uh, they were in crisis because they were like, the left is losing. What can we do differently? Maybe there's something internally in ourselves that could change. And maybe, just maybe, spirituality could help us with that and then whisper it, it's possible but not likely that religion might have something to teach us. So we should at least ask. But they'd asked loads of religious leaders to go, and all the religious leaders had said no. And I think that's partly because the guy running it is very visibly of a tribe. Like, he has big semi-dreads, he wears tie-dye, he's very open about his um, position on psychedelics. And I think if you were like a random vicar who got an email saying, will you come to this thing, and then you Googled it, you probably didn't feel that safe. We didn't feel that comfortable going into someone else's party, someone else's tribe. Uh, but I went because we had a friend in common. The, this person is a bridge person, and he made me feel safe enough to go. But I was still breastfeeding, so Chris and I went, and we, um, uh, I said, I need to bring my whole family, and they said, fine. And we got there and realized it wasn't really a conference, it was a festival, which again is fine, but for some of you would already be raising your hackles. It was entirely vegan, all cold vegan food. Um, and. Uh, now, like all of that, we, we remember driving into the drive and there was a woman wearing antlers. Just welcoming people into the car park wearing antlers. I was like, okay, this is fine, it's fine, I can do this. And um, oh, like the, that, that tribal stuff I would, I would just about have been okay with um, because I, you know, I've got enough hippie in me to manage it. But they, uh, the first six people that I introduced myself to were really friendly until I mentioned the word Christian. And at that point, it was like a door slamming closed behind their eyes. And I've experienced that before, but never in such quick succession, like one person after another person. Hi, you know, you're walking to a room of strangers, you're already a bit nervous. Hi, I'm Elizabeth. I run a Christian think tank, and you desperately now need a cup of tea. Oh, you're going to the loo. <laughs> and just ended up like on my own in this gathering, feeling like completely shut out and completely rejected. And uh, <coughs> like I'd been hit in the face. 
And we went and we tried to get the kids some cold vegan food and they wouldn't eat it. And I'm like, even the bread is made of hemp. <laughs> like, <laughs> went back to the very cold bell tent and couldn't sleep because everyone was too cold. And I just, like, I'm really ashamed if I look back on it because I just ranted. I was like tribal cliche after tribal cliche, effing this, eff like, I'm being really vulnerable about how deep this stuff goes. Just really, like, this lump of people who I am now failing to see as individuals don't like me, so I don't like them. And we're out of here. And Chris said, how about we just stay till tomorrow? And I was like, no, we're leaving. He's like, it's 11 o'clock at night, babe, in a tent in a field. Could we just try and get some sleep? Um, and he texted all our friends. And we woke up in the morning, and all of the adrenaline and cortisol had worn off. And so I still felt nervous and vulnerable, but I felt a bit calmer. And then I went and I sat in a circle and I said, um, uh, we went around and said who we are. And I said, to be honest, I'm here because someone wanted a religious perspective, but I can already feel like the wounds and the baggage that some of you really understandably have around religion. And that's making me feel a bit vulnerable and defensive. And I just wanted to name it and then hope that maybe we could have a more productive conversation today. And our bridge person friend stood up and basically said from the front, like, she's more one of us than you think she is. You can trust her. And we had the most extraordinary weekend of faith conversations. And people sidling up to, to say, you know, that they just got back from Burning Man or an ayahuasca retreat, and they'd mainly been dreaming about Jesus. And we have loads of friends from that weekend, like polyamorous Marxists and psychedelic campaigners and radical feminists who don't believe in gender and all manner of people who we might never have met who have enriched our lives and we hope that we've enriched theirs. And it now makes it much harder for when I meet other people of that tribe for me to just get and, and not engage. And now when they meet other Christians, it's much harder for them to do the same because we've something like reconciliation has happened, something like love has happened. And so I'm just going to go to the last slide, which is a sort of summary of some of the things, some of the things you can try in your own life. And we've talked a lot about the first two, about recognizing the groups or the tribes that you find difficult. And you can do this, like, even in your workplace. If there's a team member or a boss or someone that you're finding really grinds your gears, just pray for them, like seek to make friends with them before you seek to beat them, essentially. <laughs> Secondly, become aware of your uh, own fight or flight response. And this is really, really key and really, really hard. And different, like we've all got different physiology and different stories and it will be more on a hair trigger for some of us than others. Like if you have really significant social anxiety, this is something you're just gonna be really kind to yourself on. Just take loads of time, like start really small. But if you're someone who actually doesn't find uh, conflict or disagreement that difficult, then you can be the person that really pushes it, really goes to the tribe that really doesn't want you to be there and loves them because you've, you've got enough resilience to do that. Um, be empathetic is massively, massively important. Acknowledge their positions, acknowledge their emotions. With the Twitter guy, I said, I can hear you're really angry about religion. And with the guys, at the conference, I said, you rightly have some baggage and some wounds and some questions. And shifting into the mental space where you're acknowledging their position and their emotions, um, it's just like a lever you can pull to get yourself out of fight or flight. <laughs> I won't talk about boob, actually, but there's... <laughs> no, don't. Keep it simple. Um, 
be vulnerable. And this is, again, really hard, but massively effective. It's just, it's just much harder to attack someone who's just been vulnerable with you. Like, I can see people get, I can see the reaction on people's faces sometimes where they're like, oh, damn it. <laughs> now I can't stab you. <laughs> um, yeah, honestly, like, if you listen to my podcast for long enough, there's the, the, the moment, sorry, that's really in, like, self-promotion. Um, but the, there's, a, there's a few key things where I have, I have seen quite entrenched things change because I've been vulnerable. And ultimately, when Jesus says, if you get hit in the face, turn the other cheek, he's saying, be vulnerable. <laughs> don't put your shield up and don't run away. Caveat, if you're being mugged or <laughs> <laughs> under threat of sexual violence, I would not want to be responsible <laughs> for you not running away. So this is, let's just for now apply this more to situations of interpersonal conflict. Um, Yep, ask good questions. We haven't talked about this very much, but it's really key. Like, just get nosy and curious about them because the more you can understand the complexity of them as a person, the less they'll just be a tribe or a kind of hostile force in your life. Um, and entrenched conflict, ask for a do-over. And uh, that's a very Americanism, and it's because the parenting expert that I read on this is American, uh, but I haven't found a good British version of ask to start again. And it's entered our kind of family lexicon when the kids and I are having a real, like, uh, few hours, sometimes I'll say, should we have a do-over? And we'll kind of rewind to this point that we started fighting. And sometimes I'll go out the door and be like, I'm coming home from work now, kids. Hi. And it makes everyone laugh. Like, it just sort of short-circuits things a bit. And I'll leave you with a silly story, because this is really heavy, um, which is I did, I did this do-over thing on the bus recently when I was with my two kids, and they were... Um, it's just like the end of the day and hot and tired and everyone's grumpy anyway. And public transport and like nursery pickup and the school pickup and the trucking around London. And um, but the, the bus was quite empty, so I put Auden beside me and Edith over there. And then a woman got onto the bus. She looked at all the empty seats and then she said, move your child. I was like, uh, there's lots of other empty seats. Would you like to sit in those? I can hear it. Feel that. Feel that. <laughs> That's fight or flight. <laughs> and, um, and she said, no, I want to sit there. Move your, move your child. And I was like, <clears throat> you know, uh, I don't like, and I sat there and, and then my bag fell on her foot and she was like, move your bag. And I said, please, would you use please and thank you? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not, not ideal, but I said, I'm trying to teach my children manners, <laughs> which was possibly slightly passive aggressive. Um, and then we did the thing, the British thing, where you sit there and you just seethe, seethe with resentment. And it might be the guy with the headphones that are leaking or someone pushed on, but you don't say anything, you just seethe. And you're seething like with your arms touching each other, it's hideous. <laughs> just obviously like arguing with her in my head. <laughs> and then, and again, like all of her, and I've deliberately, I've stripped out of this story any of the signifiers of what she was like other than that she was a woman because I did the awful thing where I'm like, well, you're just like this. Your type are always like this. And, uh, and then I luckily caught myself and I was like, oh, yuck. And, um, and then I remembered about do-overs and I said, can we start again? Like, my name's Elizabeth, what's your name? And she just went, yeah, and introduced herself. And then we had this really nice chat. And she's got grandchildren, those kids' age. I think she was just having a bad day. Like, it was really nice. And then someone got on and tried to move my buggy, and I couldn't get out to move my buggy, and they were getting grumpy with me, and she starts defending me. <laughs> she's like, can't you see she's got two kids? <laughs> Why are you in such a rush? 
And there is, ma there is something magic about just being prepared to be the one to acknowledge that no one is enjoying this situation, and please, could we start again? Um, and then we got off, and we're like, oh, bye, old friend. <laughs> it was lovely. Um, I forgot to ask the band to come back up, so I will ask the band to come back up. And so maybe while they're doing their thing, we can leave that slide up. That was a lot. Thank you for staying with me. Um, I'm just going to pray. <sighs> Father God, thank you that you made peace with us while we were not of your tribe. While we were happily running away, <laughs> kicking out. You were vulnerable and loving and brave and kind with us. And you restored and you reconciled us to yourself. <coughs> Would you help us understand that love so deeply that we have the confidence and the peace to be peace builders? Would you help us be people who can cross tribes and heal divides for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your gospel, Do you come, Holy Spirit, and nudge us and challenge us and empower us in the ways that you need to for us to be more like you in situations of conflict and disagreement? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.